You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Hey, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study of this great gospel, seeing vistas of Jesus through snapshots of Jesus' ministry. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you, and you can turn to page 844 to see Mark chapter 8, verse 27. That's where we begin. That's where I'm going to read, and we are going to be diving right in. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered them, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is a crucial passage. In fact, this passage arguably is the turning point in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we might be tempted to stop right here and just spend our 45 minutes together unpacking these words. But it's important for us to remember that Mark has an agenda. What's interesting is that this very event is also unpacked in the Gospel of Matthew Gospel of Luke, but Mark has an express purpose, and I believe it's to fit in with the verses that follow. So let's continue, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning to see his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For... Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed." When he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let me just say as that last verse of our passage in the beginning of chapter 9 is read, I just want to say very quickly that it's hard to know what Jesus meant there. And we'll unpack this more, Lord willing, next week. But it's most likely that Mark is actually showing us what Jesus meant by giving us the transfiguration in the verses that follow. But we'll study that more in detail next week. 
Let's put our minds in the mindset of a first century Jew. How, how would a Jew in Jesus' day define success? Where would be the hope of the common Israelite of Jesus' day for gain in the life? Would it have been that their 401k grew so they could retire early? Would it have been so that their wealthy relative that they never knew would die and give them an inheritance? Maybe it was that they would be able to buy that brand new camel with the dual exhaust. Actually, that's not very good. That's bad imagery. (laughs) What was the definition or the hope of success or gain for the Jews that were in Jesus' day? Would you turn back to Daniel chapter 7? Beloved, this is so important for us as we better understand what does this passage mean? And you might have heard preaching on this passage. You might have studied it yourself, and it's so easy for us to just jump ahead. What does this mean? It means to die is gain. It means that I can be saved by losing my life. But, beloved, there's, there's something deeper. There's something bigger for us to comprehend, and we must go back to the original audience's uh, context. And I believe that they would have had Daniel 7 as their definition of success for a first century Jew. Listen to this. Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you think about the first century Jew, the first century Jew was in a long line of Jews that really going all the way back to Abraham longed to live in the land peacefully. Remember, God had promised Abraham, this land will be yours. Your, your, your family, your, your generations will inherit this land. But if you think about that, ever since Abraham into Jacob and into Moses after Egypt and into the prophets and the kings and then the empires that, uh, of Assyria and, and Babylon and Greece and Rome, all that land had always been a, an area of a lack of peace. And so the Jews for generations longed to live in their land peacefully. And there was a promise in Daniel 7 that one day that would happen. And the Ancient of Days would give a kingdom to the Son of Man. And this would be a kingdom that would be everlasting. And there would be peace forever. The Jews longed for that. That was gain for them. And so that context really sets up the significance of this passage. But listen, beloved, it also puts us in a mindset to be prepared to take all of our hopes that we have in this horizontal world and defer them to what really lasts and what is truly gain. Look at the big idea in the notes. True victory is gained by complete surrender. It's a paradox. It's, the, it's an oxymoron. It seems to be the exact opposite. How can we actually gain ultimate victory by complete surrender? Well, that is what this passage is about. You want to be able to savor loss as gain? Number one, it requires surrendering your theology. 
Surrendering your theology. Beloved, listen, theology, I've given many definitions. This is the one we're going to work with this morning. Theology is connecting the dots of data to arrive at a conclusion about God. Theology is connecting the dots that you have that are at your disposal to arrive at a conclusion about God. And listen, beloved, every human being is a theologian. I hope by now repetition is leading to learning. President Biden is a theologian. The members of the squad in politics are theologians. The terrorists in Afghanistan are theologians. Your coworker who says he is an atheist is a theologian. The agnostics are theologians. Everyone in this room is a theologian. You connect the dots of data that you have and arrive at conclusions about God. And so this opening paragraph is actually an opportunity for Jesus with his disciples to put on display that if you want to be able to savor true loss leading to true gain, you will surrender your theology. To what is the important question? This paragraph reveals that there are sources of theology, only one that matters. The first source of theology that's right here in the text is the source of culture. Would you write that down, please? The source of culture. And that is revealed in the opening line of verse 27. It says that Jesus came with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. You say, well, where's the cultural theology in that? Well, let me put a picture up on the screen. This is a picture that I took when I was traveling in Israel. This is Caesarea Philippi. This big rock right here is actually not the biggest rock that you can see from this vantage point. You can actually see a massive rock, which is Mount Hermon. It's the tallest point in Israel. So if you're standing here, you're looking at this big cliff, and it is significant, and it is overwhelming. But just beyond that, you can see Mount Hermon that rises near over 9,000 feet up into the air. It's actually visible in the southern regions of Israel. This is a massive summit. And this massive summit would have been the the visual that the disciples had when we get to Matthew 16. And Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, which is a significant historical context. But specifically, this cave is important. And the reason for that is there was a, 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 a creek or a spring that came out of this creek, out of this cave, and actually became the beginning of the Jordan River. And so this area was well known to have lush, fertile uh, plants. It had a great vegetation. But, but what was interesting is that this cave was to believed to be the, the home of the Greek god Pan. And why is that important? Well, the Greek god Pan was the Greek god of victory, the Greek god of nature. And so what you'll see is over here on the, the wall, you can see these little carvings And there were these plaques and these monuments to Pan that they have found through archaeology. And not just to Pan, but also to the pantheon of gods, to Zeus, to Poseidon, even to Hades. And so this area, even though it was the tribal area of Dan, was actually a very pagan culture. In fact, not far from this specific spot, there are the remains of a a massive marble temple that uh, Philip the Tetrarch had built for Caesar to worship Caesar. 
So even though this was in Israel where Yahweh was to be worshipped, it was actually very much an eclectic place of worship, an area of pagan worship, and that was the cultural theology of that area. So when Jesus brought his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi, about to ask them the ultimate question of theology, there was a great influence of cultural theology. But Jesus was drilling down beyond that, wasn't he? Look at the question that he asks in verse 27. This is the second source of theology that we have in our society and in this room. And that is the source of personal opinion. Personal opinion contributes to our theology. He says, who do the people say that I am? And even look at the responses. You see John the Baptist in chapter 6. We see that the people in the culture were saying, maybe Jesus is the John the Baptist raised from the dead. You see others were saying, maybe you are Elijah. And that's chapter 9. We'll see that more clearly. Others were saying that he's one of the prophets. There were a lot of popular personal opinions on the theology of this man who was asking the question. I think it's interesting to remember this, beloved, and that is people will construct a theology that is comfortable for them. Isn't that true? I mean, you might be here because you hope that in this church you will find a theology that is comfortable for you. And and there's a merry-go-round in our culture of people going from one church until they're uncomfortable and then going to another church until they're uncomfortable and then another church until they're uncomfortable. And beloved, listen, we construct a personal theology that is comfortable for us. And that's why Jesus moves to a second question. Look at verse three. Who do you say that I am? There's two words that are very important for us. Would you look at the text? Look look at this, please, because this is where every word of God, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, is inspired by God. It's important for us to evaluate. There's a word in verse 24, sorry, verse 29. I'm getting too excited. It's but. But is a conjunction of contrast. So what is the personal opinion of the popular culture, but who do you say that I am? The second word that's important is not found here in the original. It's actually, or not here in the English, it's actually in the original. It's the emphatic pronoun you. So what Jesus is actually saying is, but who do you yourself say that I am? And beloved, this is so important for us because the question that Jesus is asking the disciples is the same question that through his word he is asking you, individual human being with a soul, it is how will you respond? You know, when I was in high school, I I did pretty well. That's not a prideful comment because you're about to see how I did in college. But in high school, things came pretty easily to me. And so when we had group projects, people wanted me to be part of their group. I didn't really understand why until I got to college when all of a sudden what they were telling me from my business classes was like Greek to me, meaning I didn't understand it. And so what I did is I started listening to the other people in the class and listened to people who they got this and I would make sure I was part of their group. 
And I would volunteer to put all the PowerPoints together, but when the, when the speech and the presentation came, I was the guy in the background that's like, mm, yes, yes. Didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And so what happened was, in college, is I got good grades, not because I myself got it, but because my group got it. And I think that's somehow how people approach theology. Is latch yourself to a group that seems to get it. It seems like they're successful. It seems like their books are selling. It's comfortable, and it makes sense to me. So I'll latch on to that, but I haven't wrestled with it myself. So there's three important reminders and aspects that this passage is telling us. Number one, you are responsible. You are responsible. There will come a day when the God of the universe, and beloved, I was just thinking about this. A couple people lost loved ones and and family members over this last week, and there were funerals, and I was reminded of my mortality. Which, listen, if you're in your 20s, that's not really a big thing on your radar, but the older you get, it will be. Just trust me. And there will come a day when you will close your eyes in this life and open them in the presence of the God of the universe. And there's a movie that I enjoyed watching years ago. It's not necessarily a movie that you wouldn't want to watch without clear play. But it's the movie A Few Good Men. You remember that? Jack Nicholson. Remember, there's a guy, a soldier that's, that's on the witness stand. And he gets to a point where he's panicking and he, he doesn't have the answers. And his, 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 his associate was the one who constantly would give him the answers. And you remember that scene? And he's looking out and he's like, how, how, how? Like, give me the answers. But he is on the witness stand. And beloved, you and I will be there. And on that day, these words will ring true, and hopefully you will be affirming them instead of scared to death because of what follows, but you and I are responsible ourselves. Number two, there are resources out there to help. There are resources to help. Some are dangerous. Some are distracting Some are duds, and some are helpful. Peter says in verse 29, in response to Jesus' question, you are the Christ. Matthew 16, 16 adds this phrase, you are the son of the living God, which wouldn't that have been a contrast between the gods that were up on a wall and rocks? You are the the Christ. But see, for Mark, and remember who was dictating this most likely to Mark? Peter. It was enough for them that he just left the statement as, you are the Christ. Why? Well, the Greek word Christ is Christos, which is the translation of the Hebrew term Mashiach, which is anointed one from which we get the word Messiah. I hope this is interesting to you, but the word Mashiach is found in Leviticus to describe the priests. They were the anointed ones. 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles, Mashiach is referred to with the kings who were anointed. The Psalms use the word Mashiach to describe the prophets. Isn't that interesting? Prophets, priests, and kings. And then Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, actually uses Mashiach in reference to a future anointed one. 
Now, the opinions of the people of Jesus' day were, were, were broad. The, the Qumran community thought that the Messiah would actually be two people, one that would come from the line of David, one that would come from the line of Levi. There would be a king and there would be a priest. The Sadducees, as a group, were not really interested in Messiah. They were kind of more of a meh when it came to Messiah. They were happy with things staying status quo. But the majority of Jews of Jesus' day were longing for Messiah that would be a political Messiah, that would be that king, that warrior king that would come and overthrow Rome, and that was likely what Peter and the disciples were looking for. We'll see that as we unpack the text. So, beloved, there are resources. You are responsibility, but the third reminder of theology I want you to remember is there is only one standard. There's only one standard, and it is not Pastor Jeff's standard. It's not John MacArthur's standard. It's not John Piper. It's not the Baptist. It's not the Presbyterian. There's only one standard. That standard is the one who is asking the question. And we see him very interestingly in verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The word there that's translated strictly charged is the word rebuke. We'll see that again in verse 32 and first verse 33. What is the point of Jesus' statement? It's the point that I'm making in this first outline point, and that is the gospel sticks to its own standard, its own timeline. It does not submit to culture. It does not submit to popular opinion. It is not up for personal interpretation. And so, beloved, when we think about true gain in our lives, it begins by this paragraph reminding us that we must surrender our theology. To what? To a personal wrestling with God's word. To the help of the, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the context and support of the local church community. That's where we surrender our theology. That will achieve true gain. But number two, it also requires surrendering your thoughts. Surrendering your thoughts. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them. You know, I love this. We actually see this in chapter 4 that Jesus begins to teach. And so this is Mark and Peter giving him this information, setting up something that is, is transitional. So, so Jesus begins to teach. But, but what is he beginning to teach? Well, don't jump ahead. Look at the next phrase. That the Son of Man... Do you remember hearing that title just a few moments ago when we read Daniel 7, 13 and 14? The Son of Man. So the disciples would have heard this and said, yes, he's affirming. He is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Woohoo! Let's get out the swords. It's time. So he begins teaching to them that the Son of Man, yes, must suffer. What? And not only must suffer, must suffer many things. What? And be rejected by the Sanhedrin. That's who these three categories were. The rulers, the chief priests, the scribes. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the the ones who were the religious conscience of the entire nation of Israel. Rejected by them? (laughs) And be killed. That was too much. It was too much. 
And we see that it was too much in verse 32. It says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. There's the same verb that we saw in verse 30. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. You ever heard a rumor about someone and that becomes the way that you view them? Ever read a headline about masks or vaccines and that becomes the color of the lenses that you view every other bit of information? Friends, our thoughts are often the final judge and arbitrator of truth in our lives, aren't they? I mean, we constantly see that. We constantly see that, and we see that here in this text. Our thoughts are often the final judge and arbitrator of truth in our lives. And we see this a lot in the Midwest, don't we? I've lived in the Midwest most of my life. I've lived all over the country, but I especially see this. Man, it is amazing how much we see in the Midwest people who spend their lives not talking to family and friends because of some event from the past. And yes, this happens in other places, but it really happens here. We are very stubborn. In fact, that's why the Missouri state is called the show me state. I'm not going to not going to bend, not going to change unless you can prove it to me. Beloved, we see this with political parties. Parents were a certain political party. Grandparents were a certain political party. So that's what I am. But, but you're saved now. And you see that that political party believes in abortion. I don't care. I've always been this. What? Our thoughts become the final judge and arbitrator of all things and truth. For the disciples, they had, had years of Torah school. They had had years of rabbinical teaching. They had had, even by now, years of Jesus teaching them. But the problem was that their thoughts were not aligned. That's why in verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter, but he rebukes all of the disciples. Isn't that interesting? Look at what it says in verse 33. He, he turned and saw his disciples. Most likely what he saw is they're all nodding their head with Peter. Peter was probably using a stage whisper. You know what a stage whisper is? It's where you whisper loud enough so that everybody in the audience can hear you. And the disciples are probably all saying, mm, yeah, Jesus, Mm-mm, this is not good. And he turns and he speaks specifically to Peter, but he's speaking to all of the disciples. And what does he say? Look at this. Get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but this one's a tough one. I mean, is Satan like this puppeteer using Peter? Is Satan actually there? And Jesus is speaking to him and not Peter? Is Peter possessed? I mean, what, what, what is going on here? And, and the answer I've got to give you is my, my opinion, but I've got to tell you, it's not easy to know, but I think that the text tells us. And I think the key phrase is, look at verse 33, get behind me. The word behind me, that same word is going to be found in verse 34 in the context of discipleship. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is saying to Peter, get behind me, get in line. And he does say Satan, but what is, what is he referring to when he says Satan? Well, Satan is the oppressor, right? 
He's the aggressor against Jesus. He is the exact opposite of Jesus. If you've got a way Jesus is going, Satan is going in the exact opposite. So I think what, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, listen, Peter, you're acting in a way and you're thinking in a way that Satan does. It's your own agenda. It's your own passions. It's your own desires. And he's saying, no, 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 get in line with me and think my way. And that's the next phrase. Look at what it says. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What does the word that is translated setting your mind on mean? Well, it means keep on giving serious attention to. Friends, what do you give serious attention to? Stock prices. How many of you, the very first thing that you turn on in the morning is Fox Business Channel? Or you're looking at the, the ticker at the bottom? How'd your retirement do? Maybe it's the scores. How many of you woke up early to see if Bama lost? And thank God that they did. <laughs> I mean, if you're a Nebraska fan yesterday. <sighs> okay, you can see that. But what do we do? Is the first thing you do this morning was to check out the scores or was it to read the Word of God? Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's technology. Maybe it's trends. Maybe it's YouTube videos. I see this with the younger generation. We're constantly watching YouTube videos. What do you set your minds on? Podcasts, Pinterest. What are you setting your minds on with, with great interest and with great energy? Because if it's the things of man, it will influence your thoughts. So when something uncomfortable comes your way, listen, I will preach things that are uncomfortable for you. And what is it that is uncomfortable? Is it that you have wrestled with the text yourself and you've got biblical reason for why it's uncomfortable? Or is it that it's your thoughts are aligned with the thoughts of men? Jesus says you should not have your mind focused and keep giving serious attention to the things of man, but the things of God. Satan wants you to think about the things that are comfortable. He wants you to think about the things that align with your passions and your desires, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. That is what this world system is designed to do. Watch the Chiefs game tonight and watch the commercials. How many of those commercials are pointing you to think of others more highly than yourself to the glory of Christ? Even the ones that are telling you to, to give money to you know, the poor people in Africa or, or, or think of others are doing so in a fashion that you'll feel better about yourself. This world system is focused on self. It's the things of men. It doesn't mean you can't check Pinterest out. It doesn't mean you can't watch YouTube videos. It doesn't mean you can't check the headlines of the news. But what are you giving serious attention to? What are you prioritizing in your life? Because if you want true gain in your life, beloved, you must surrender your thoughts. Surrendering them to what? Well, the passage tells us the, the things of God. Immersing yourself, reading daily conversing about it, talking to others about it. We, we challenge our men in our small group 
to have accountability partners. I've got a couple of them, and we text each other. We try to text every day. And we say, this is what I read. This is what I learned about God's character. This is what I learned about the human condition. This is how it's going to affect my thinking today. And it's an exercise of discipline, of immersing myself. Because listen, if I don't do that, then the passage in Zechariah that I spent today, or that I read this morning, can easily just go into the distance and go into the background. Now, why do we do this? Listen to me, beloved, please. Please hear me on this. Do not be distracted on this. Why do we study God's word on a daily basis? Is it because we have to? No, listen, it is because there are treasures. And I skipped over the treasure that the disciples missed on purpose. Look at what it says at the end of verse 31. After three days, he will rise again. Friends, when we're not immersing ourselves in God's word, when we're focused on the thoughts of man, we miss the treasures that God has revealed right here in the text. I love video games. What I describe this as is Mario Kart. If you've ever played Mario Kart, you're driving around and there's, there's these big coins that you want to pick up. There are coins in Scripture but if you just pick them up, they are treasures. This would have given the disciples exactly what they needed if they would have just realized, yes, rejected, yes, suffer, yes, killed, but rise again in three days. And friend, whatever you're going through, the treasures that you need are found in scriptures, but sometimes you gotta dig. Sometimes you gotta converse. Sometimes you got to ask questions of godly, mature people in your small groups. Friends, if you want to get true gain in your life, it requires surrendering your thoughts to the thoughts of God. Number three, true gain requires surrendering your trinkets. Surrendering your trinkets. Those were some harsh words for the disciples, but they're also going to be an opportunity for the gloves to come off with both the disciples and the crowds. Look at verse 34, calling the crowd to him with the disciples. So that is the group that he's speaking to, both the 12 disciples and a massive crowd. Why are we including these verses in this passage? Because I think that it is all in t- included, intended to be together. Look at what he says in verse 34. He said to them, if anyone would come after me. Circle that phrase, after me. It's the same phrase that we see back up when, when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me. Come after me. Follow me. If you want to be my disciple. How many here, I would ask you to raise your hand, but I don't know if it would achieve what I'm wanting to. But how many of here would be willing to say, you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Be careful before you would raise your hand. Because he's not just interested in you being a disciple for the benefits you get out of it. He says, if you desire, if you wish, if you want to be my disciple and come after me, there's three imperatives. I would encourage you to write these down. The first one is, he must deny himself. Oh man, this has been so misunderstood through the years. There's been people who have said denying yourself means you need to move to a monastery and wear long-browed Jedi robes. 
And some people think beating yourself on the head with a piece of wood. Other people would say you need to sell everything and move to international missions. What does deny yourself mean? Well, if we take this in context and look at the rest of the New Testament, here's a definition that I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. It means to renounce your claim to yourself, your desires, your ambitions, your personal goals. Submit them to Christ as his slave. It is a denial of autonomy and self-sufficiency. It's from... Mark Strauss's commentary, The Gospel of Mark. Beloved, this is what it means. It does not mean you can't enjoy nice things. But what is your motivation? Is the gospel before nice things? Is the gospel before career pursuits? Is the gospel before popularity? Are you willing to wake up in the morning and say, the most important reality and identity in my life is Christ Jesus, and my purpose on this earth is to magnify him? That's what denying yourself means. He requires that to be his disciple. But then the next imperative is take up your cross. Now, for us in the 21st century, we say, well, of course. I mean, after all, that's what we wear on our jewelry. Some of you have tattoos with a cross. Some of you have bumper stickers with a cross. Whatever it is, we think a cross, of course, but not for the first century. In fact, I would submit to you that when you think about covenantal signs, you know that the flood, the Noahic covenant, had the rainbow Both the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants had circumcision. I think this is one of the signs of the new covenant is the cross. But for the first century Jew and for the first century human being living in the known world, the cross would have been a stop the press. It was the most shameful form of execution, the most painful form of execution. The individual would likely be stripped naked, hanging on the stick, waiting for the creatures of the earth to devour the body. It is impossible for a first century human being to imagine a more shameful form of execution than the cross. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross. What does he mean by this? Well, another quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. Our cross is a suffering we experience as a result of living out the gospel. Let me get it a little bit more practical. It's the response of your partners when you say, no, I'm not going to go out drinking. Yeah, but this is an important client. No. I'm not going to do that because I know what's going to happen. I had a friend talk to me the other day that said that he had an opportunity to go on this amazing business trip, all expenses paid. But the history of pre- previous business trips told him that unrighteous things were going to happen. And even though he was committed, it would put him in awkward situations. And I said, listen, man, I don't care what it means to your job. I don't care what your coworkers will think about you. I wouldn't go. It's a response. Listen to this, friends, in Johnson County of coaches and other parents, when you go to the coach and you say, we will not practice, we will not play on a Sunday morning. 
Man, this is getting kind of ow, right? Because this is the practical reality of this is, are you committed to living out the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your coworkers, so that your partners, when they look at you, they don't see skills, they don't see revenue, they see Christ. That is taking up your cross. The third imperative is following Christ. Jesus says it's not enough to be called a follower. You must follow. That's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. You want to be called a Christian? You want to be called a follower? Then follow. What he does in the passage that follows is give a series of mirror images that make a point. It homes in on Psalm 49, 7 through 9, but here's the quote I'll put up on the screen to summarize what these verses say, and that is the patterns of your thinking that overflow in your speech and behavior will reveal the status of your soul. How can you tell? Let me ask you this. When you go out with your colleagues, is your behavior the same behavior that you would demonstrate if you were up here on stage on a Sunday morning? When you go to the dinner party, when you're with the cool kids in the hallways as a student, when you're around people who have money, Are you intimidated by that to not live out the gospel of Jesus Christ? To not courageously proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just by your actions, but also by your words. When you're on social media, do you speak and act one way and another when you're here on Sunday mornings or when you're in accountability time in small group? That's what these verses mean. If you are acting differently, beloved, it is likely, as these verses say, ashamed of Christ and his word. You are likely trying to save your life. You're trying to have self-preservation. Jesus asked this question, what return on investment is the universe? Man, listen, the gloves are off. Because we buy into the lie that Jafar did in Aladdin, don't we? This is for the kids, but I think you'll get the point. Remember, Jafar had three wishes, and he's wishing for power. I want this. Oh, but there's something bigger and better. I want that. And finally, the way that he was tripped up is to believe the lie that if I could have the entire universe and control it the way that I want it and be the most powerful, I will be satisfied. And that was his demise. Beloved, listen, there's always something bigger. There's always something better. Always something newer. And Jesus says, what if you got the whole world? What if you got it all? What if there was nothing more this life could offer you? You had it, but you lost your soul. The 
There's a man named William Somerset Maugham. He was the wealthiest author and playwright of the 1930s. His nephew gives an account. He was 91 years old in 1965. His nephew says he was sitting in his uncle's villa in the Riviera. He looked out the window and saw the amazing blue water. Saw the amazing view. It's one of those views that you would pay millions for. He looked around that room and every piece of furniture was not Ikea furniture. It was the wealthiest money could buy. The portraits on the walls worth millions. He had a cook that was the envy of all the other millionaires in the Riviera. He had 11 servants, a butler, a footman. All of it meant nothing to this 91-year-old. And his nephew writes that he came in one morning and saw his uncle sitting on that beautiful velvet couch. But he had this look of grim terror on his face. What he was doing is he was reading the Bible that his nephew had given him. And this was the passage that he was reading. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The nephew says that his uncle said this, I must tell you, my dear nephew, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. By all accounts, William Somerset Mom has spent these last 46 years in eternal judgment. 91 years of all this world could offer. 91 years of trinkets. But his soul was forfeited. Friend, you're here today motivated by something. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe it's something else that this world has to offer you that is sure glittering in the sunlight. Jesus is reminding us that all that glitters in this world is fool's goal. In order to gain what you have been designed for, Ecclesiastes 3.11 and Isaiah 43.7 says, is through losing. 